But chapter 9 of Romans is what is going to be our study this morning. And as we continue through this wonderful, incredible letter that Paul wrote to the Christians 2,000 years ago, he's at the end of his third missionary journey. And he's in the city of Corinth, and he takes pen to parchment. He begins to write to the Christians here. He explained, as we saw in chapter 1, his desire was to come to them. He says, I'm ready to preach the gospel in Rome. And he had never been there to that point uh, that he's at the end of his third missionary journey. He says, I'm hindered from coming to you. He knew some of the Christians there because we're going to see at the end of this letter, this book, that he personally greets some of the Christians that were there. He says, I desire to come to you. I'm hindered from coming to you um, right now. He is ready to go to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, as you read the book of Acts in those chapters, from chapter 21 to the end of the book, you see that Paul ends up uh, being taken into protective custody by the Romans because the Jews wanted to kill him there in Jerusalem. And he goes through this series of legal trials. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar uh, there at Caesarea. They said to Caesar, you're going to go. So he gets on a boat, he goes to Rome, he eventually makes it after being shipwrecked on Malta. But as you read that, he goes to Rome. We know that he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7 for about two years. And there he writes the prison epistles that you have in the New Testament. And then he would stand before Caesar Nero. He would be released. And then later on, he would be rearrested to where they threw him into a dark, dark dungeon. And then he would be beheaded in about 67 AD, same year that Peter was uh, put to death by the orders of Caesar Nero. But here's Paul at this time. He's writing to them. And as we have seen in the first eight chapters, that he is writing impacting life-changing truth and theology. Now remember that he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. And then he would say, not only am I ready to preach the gospel, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I hope for you and me here at Calvary that we would never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written that the just shall live by faith. And Paul begins to tell us the need of every man and every woman is to come to the gospel. And the reason is, is because he makes the case in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we all stand guilty before God. We're all sinners, aren't we? And you see, we're not saved by our own righteousness. We're not saved by our own goodness. We can't be saved uh, by trying to keep the law because we don't. The law just points to us that we are guilty. So he kind of sums up that section in chapter 3 by saying we all stand guilty, the whole world, before God, but we're not left in this hopeless state. Uh, Later on, we know that because we are sinners, that the wages of sin is death, but we know that Jesus Christ would come to give us life, right? And in chapters 3, 4, and 5, he gives us the doctrine of justification. It's a legal term, meaning being declared righteous, justification literally means just as if I've never sinned. As we are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed, and it isn't again by the works 
works of the law. It's coming in faith in Jesus Christ for what he has done on the cross and dying for our sins. He was put into a grave. He rose again. He's at the right hand of the Father. He proved that he's the Son of God. He conquered sin and death. And now we have justification that comes through Jesus Christ. Not our own righteousness, not our own goodness, but through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he ends that section by saying that where sin abounds, that grace abounds much more. And then chapter 6, 7, and 8, the next section, is the doctrine of sanctification. And you see, sanctification, as many of you know, means to be set apart. And he writes that because we experience and, and have been given and uh, are recipients of his incredible grace, the unmerited favor of God, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no. That now that you've come to Christ, that you are to live for Christ. And you are dead to sin. We identify with Christ in this newness of life. So chapter 6, we're dead to sin. Chapter 7, we're dead to the law because the law can't save us. So that we can be joined to another. And then as we saw last time, chapter 8, we spent about five weeks in chapter 8 going through that incredible uh, chapter that we have here in Romans. That we are ones that uh, we are heirs to God, joint heirs with Christ. Uh, it begins chapter 8 by telling us that those of us in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. We have the spirit of adoption, not of fear, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we belong to him. Just this peace and this confidence that we have that I belong to God through Jesus Christ. I have a relationship with the Father. I have salvation. I'm a child of God, joint heir with Christ, that, that I have this spirit of adoption. I can cry out, Abba, Father. And then last week, as we ended the chapter, Paul given us this wonderful and glorious truth that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. So it begins chapter 8 with there's no condemnation in Christ and nothing will separate us from the love of Christ at the end. Neither tribulation nor distress nor persecution or famine. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. There's no created thing that is able to separate us from the love of God. And I pray that you would always make that your own. That you would remember this, that God will always love you. And he loved you then when he went to the cross and died for your sins. That even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he loves you now and he will never stop loving you. So Paul is just rejoicing as he reflects on the goodness of God, the provision of God, his relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ. He's writing all of this to the Gentile believers there in Rome. Gentiles, that term is non-Jewish believers. And, and he is just elated. Um, and as we move into chapter 9 now, Paul now his heart is turned towards his brethren. That is the Jews, his countrymen. And he expresses here, as we're going to pick it up in chapter 9, his sorrow and, and grief that he feels towards them because we're going to see as we travel through the next three chapters, and particularly as we get to the end of chapter 9, which we won't today, that Paul states that Jesus Christ, the one who is the author of life, the one who's provided salvation and forgiveness of sin, that 
that what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary has been a stumbling block to them. He would write something very similar to the Corinthian church in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He says that the gospel, that it's a stumbling to the Jews, it's foolishness to the Greeks. But we know that as he reflects on the state of the Jewish people that had rejected their Messiah, that they have not entered into the richness and the fullness of God's love through Jesus Christ. And that is salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the law of Moses. And we will read when we get to chapter 10, you see, because in chapter 9, he talks about Israel's past. Chapter 10, he's going to talk about Israel's present. And in chapter 11, he's going to talk about their future. He, he's going to say, has God cast away his people forgotten about them he says certainly not and he's going to tell us of the future of Israel and it's going to be wonderful and we'll get there uh, later on as we travel through this book but in chapter 10 he says that as far as his countrymen that they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God you see they thought that they could be righteous by the law of Moses by keeping the law and Paul has explained very extensively and, and very much in detail to you and to me that the law, we can't keep it. It just declares that we are guilty. But you see, it's not just the mind of the Jewish uh, person back then and maybe even today, but we know people that are linked to us to, in our lives that they think that they're going to be able to stand before God in their own righteousness, that I am a good person, that I've done good works, uh, I, I've done good things and it outweighs my bad. And you talk to people and I've talked to them that they really honestly believe that they will be okay to stand before God in their own righteousness rather than going to Jesus Christ, being forgiven and being, you know, uh, able to stand before God through the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and surrendering our lives to him as Lord and Savior and being forgiven. Our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord, is what Isaiah says. So if anybody is here this morning, you think that you're going to be okay because you're a good person standing before the Lord in your own righteousness and goodness and your own works, you're going to fail. And not because I said so, because the Word of God is very, very clear on that. That it's only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, He is our salvation. So here, as Paul reflects on that, he begins to write about it, and, and he says that the gospel is a stumbling to my countrymen. And, and Paul, uh, as he's been declaring the first eight chapters, that Jew and Gentiles alike have need of salvation, that we are justified freely, well, that word means we can't earn it by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see in the opening of the, what Paul says here in this new section of Romans that as some say, well, this is, seems like kind of out of place, that all of a sudden he's writing about the love of Christ and then he begins to talk about Israel. Um, I don't think it's really out of place because just being a Bible teacher, here he concludes chapter 8 by just marveling and explaining expressing the greatness of God's love, right? And then he stops and he thinks about his countrymen and he turns to his countrymen and says, you have rejected that love. You have rejected that love that God has provided through Jesus Christ, proven his love, the work of redemption, and it would be heavy on his heart. And Paul expressing his sorrow 
perhaps we might think that Paul would have bitterness against the Jews because as he's writing this letter, again, as we put on our thinking caps uh, and, and think about, here's Paul, he's expressing this grief and sorrow and love that he has for his countrymen. This is the end of the third missionary journey of Paul the Apostle. He's gone through tremendous persecution and difficulty by the hands of the Jews. We know that in his first missionary journey, that, that Paul went to Lystra and the Jews come along and they stir up the people to where they stoned Paul and left him for dead. And it says in the book of Acts that Paul rose up and he went back into the city. And I think, man, that's, that's, that is so incredible because, you know, I've gone through persecution by the hands of others, but I've never been stoned and left for dead. And I think if that would have been me, I would have gone into retirement. That would have been it for me. But Paul got up and he went back into the city. He goes back there and visits once again Lystra on a second missionary journey. But then when he goes to Macedonia, he goes to Philippi. He's with Silas. Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, has joined them. Paul goes through persecution there in Philippi, thrown in prison. We have the wonderful story of the Philippian jailer that comes to the Lord. A church is established in Philippi. He leaves Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica. And it tells us there in Acts chapter 17 that Paul is there for about three Sabbaths. And the Jews come along and persecute him and drive him out of the city. He goes to Berea, the next city. They do the same thing to him there. We know that Paul here, after he leaves Corinth, he's going to make his way to Jerusalem. And as he stops and speaks, speaks to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, before he gets to Jerusalem, he says, you know what manner of man I was in all seasons? That in my ministry I've gone through many tears and trials by the plotting of the Jews. And the Holy Spirit has testified to me that when I get to Jerusalem that chains and tribulations await me, but I don't count any of these things dear to myself for I'm determined to finish my race with the joy that is in my heart for the gospel that is set before me. And Paul, of course, would go to Jerusalem to where he would be arrested, accused falsely of bringing Gentiles to the temple. The whole city rioted against him, and they were going to kill Paul and rip him apart. And the Romans came down and rescued Paul and took him into protective custody, as I've already mentioned. It would set a series of, of uh, trials of this legal nightmare that he would go through to where he would end up going to Rome, waiting to go before Caesar Nero. Paul had experienced such difficulty by the hands of his countrymen, but yet he had such a heart for them. He had such a love for them. He expresses that. Let's begin to look at chapter 9, verse 1. That I tell you the truth in Christ, that I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, uh, according to the flesh. So Paul here, as he makes this amazing statement, his desire was for the, the salvation of his brethren, the Jews. It was so strong. He said, I am willing to be separated from Christ if that somehow could accomplish the salvation of Israel. And I believe that we see that Paul always had a deep affection for his brethren, his countrymen. Again, when he got saved in the book of Acts, 
that there he gets saved on the road to Damascus. You know his story. He was persecuting the church at that time. He was actually known as Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of Pharisee, was exceeding, you know, beyond all his contemporaries in Judaism. He was so dedicated to the law, and he hated the Christians. He was persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem. He was actually going to Damascus to arrest Christians there, and on the way he meets the Lord. He's converted. And as he goes to Damascus, the very first thing that he does, he, he goes into the synagogue there in Damascus, and he confounded them as he's preaching Christ to them. They're going, isn't this Saul of Tarsus? Isn't this the one that, that persecuted the Christians and, and are arresting them? And so much against, you know, the gospel, the cause of Christ. Now he's preaching Christ. And he confounded them, the scripture says there in the book of Acts, but he did not convert them. So he goes to Arabia for about three years. He's taught by the Lord. He comes back to Damascus. He goes into the synagogue again. This time the Jews want to kill him. He has to escape Damascus in a basket over the wall at night. He then goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem. The apostles are holding him out at arm's length, kind of like, we don't know about this, you know, Saul. And we don't know if his conversion's real. And Barnabas whose name means the son of encouragement, consolation. He says, listen, Peter, John, you guys, that his conversion is real. You need to receive him. And he goes into the synagogue, the Hellenistic uh, Jews, and he begins to preach Christ to them, and they want to kill Paul. So the apostles put him on a boat, send him off to Tarsus, where he's there for a number of years. He learns to make tents because he lost everything. And then all of a sudden, revival breaks out in Antioch, Acts chapter 13. And Barnabas goes and gets Paul and says, here, come to Antioch. You need to teach these Gentiles. And that's where they would begin their missionary journeys. So Paul had gone through so much. And yet, as he had gone through so much, he always had a heart for his countrymen, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles and he experienced great difficulty at the hands of the Jews. Paul says, it's the Holy Spirit that's bearing witness to the truth of my deep love for my countrymen, for Israel. And it reminds me, as I think about this, of another leader in the Old Testament that experienced great persecution by the hands of his people, and that was Moses. You know Moses. The kids are learning about Moses' parents. As you go home, you can talk to them about the lesson that they learn of Moses. But Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They come to the mountain of God. God shows himself, you know, there uh, as the mountain shook and there was smoke and there was fire and there was lightnings and thunders and the mountain shook and the people trembled at the awesomeness of God. And they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain. And we'll do what you tell us to do. And Moses goes up there, and he's up there for a while. And after 40 days, the people grow impatient. And they said, where's Moses? Where's this man that brought us out of the wilderness? So they ended up made, making a calf out of gold. And they fashioned it, and they began to worship it and dance around it, committing all kinds of fornication and sin. And as that's going on, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God. And God says to Moses, Moses, your people have corrupted themselves. And Moses kind of reminds the Lord, um, they're your people, first of all. And, and the Lord says, stand back, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And Moses begins to intercede for the people. 
He says, Lord, that you made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What are the other nations going to say that you brought your people out just to destroy them? And Moses goes down the mountain. He deals with the people. He deals with Aaron. He goes back up on the mountain the next day, and he begins to pray. And he says that, Lord, I know that these people have committed a great sin. He didn't make any excuse for them. They made themselves a god of gold. But, Lord, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And I read that, and I think that is so incredible. I read what Paul is saying here as he was persecuted by the hands of the Jews. Jews all through his ministry and he says that I am willing to be a curse for the sake of the salvation of, of my countrymen the Jews that they would come to know the gospel and I think that's true love that's only a love that God can work into anyone's heart and if I were to put myself in Moses sandals or in Paul's sandals I really would think what would be my reaction if I was Moses because here the people always challenged him his authority they would have a vote you know the house him as you know the shepherd and the leader of, of God's people and it would be a unanimous vote two and a half million to nothing and Moses why'd you bring us out here and here they saw the awesome power of God and here they are all of a sudden committing idolatry and and fornication and all of this and I think if it was me and the Lord said I'm going to wipe them out I'll make you a great nation if I wouldn't have said okay Lord that sounds pretty good to me I mean honestly because they're always coming against me. And they've been a real pain to me. And Lord, go ahead. Because they deserve it. But there is Moses up on the mountain saying, Lord, forgive them if it not blot me out of the book yet you have written. It was Paul that is saying that I have such grief and sorrow for my countrymen. That I wish I myself were cursed if it would bring salvation to them. And I think it's worth stopping and asking ourselves this morning to consider this. How can we develop that kind of heart and affection and love in the same way? How can you and I overcome bitterness that can come and anger and wrath to somebody who has hurt us, been hostile towards us, that has caused problems in our lives, that has betrayed us? They have persecuted us. And as I think about this, that's a real challenge, isn't it? But as I look at the life of Moses and of Paul, I think the real key is what we see in Moses' life and Paul's life, and that is they spent time in the presence of the Lord in prayer. You see, Moses had just spent 40 days on the mountain of God, in the presence of God, and it's my own personal speculation that if Moses had not been up on that mountain in the presence of God for those 40 days prior to the incident of Exodus chapter 32 that we just discussed, that he may not have had the heart for the people of Israel that he did. Paul the apostle, he prayed for his brethren and that they would come to the knowledge of Christ. He says in chapter 10, it's my heart's desire and prayer for Israel that they may be saved. Paul was practicing what Jesus had taught. Jesus said to you and to me, we are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us, who come against us. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'll speak for myself. The Lord's still working that in my heart, okay? He's still working that in my life. 
But I need to remember this. That was not a suggestion. It is a commandment of our Lord. Do you want me to love my enemies? And I've had some people come against me, say rotten things, come against my family. Those who are out to destroy my ministry or whatever or rejected me. And Lord, help me to not be full of bitterness and anger and wrath towards these people or this individual. And I don't want my heart to be that they deserve damnation and hell. But I want to come to that place of, Lord, truly, you need to save them, work in their lives. I'm going to pray for them because you told me to. And then, Lord, as I pray, you know, as we pray for those who hurt us, it's not condoning what they did. It's not just, you know, well, whatever, and, and continuing to be a target or to be in a place where they continually hurt you and sin against you, it doesn't mean any of those things. What you're saying is, Lord, I'm going to do what Jesus has commanded me to do, which I think is the hardest thing that he's called us to do, is to forgive somebody who's really hurt us and to pray for those who have persecuted us or come against us. But Lord, I hear your word, and I'm going to do it. It's not a warm, fuzzy, emotional kind of thing that, that you know we feel. It is something that, Lord, i got to do day by day, bit by bit, over and over again, moment by moment. Lord, help me. Because it has to be a work that he does in my life. And I understand this, that, Lord, I don't want to go through life being full of anger and bitterness and in bondage to this. Because that bitterness and that anger grows and it will begin to just destroy your spiritual life. And it will begin to hold you in bondage. And then that person or that situation still has power over you. So, Lord, I'm going to choose in my heart to pray for them that their eyes might be open that they might turn away from their sin and hurt they might come to you that they repent from their sin they might come to you for salvation whatever the circumstances and I know this that as we begin to say Lord then I'm going to pray for them then there's this linkage that is there as you continue to do that over and over, bit by bit, day by day, as I said. And it's a supernatural work that God begins to do in our hearts. We can't do it ourselves. And I don't know if we'll ever do this perfectly. But that's the direction where he wants us to go. What we see here with Moses and with Paul, they continually pray for the people that were as rotten as you can be. And God did a work in changing their hearts where they ended up having a true love for them, even willing to be a curse on their behalf. And that's incredible to me. Now, before you tune me out, maybe somebody that's here, they say, I don't want to listen to this. And why should I pray for them? Because they hurt me deeply. They betrayed me. They, they've upset me. They continue to be rotten to me. Well, a couple reasons. First of all, you see, as we pray for them, not only praying, Lord, that you change them, but you know what happens? It changes us. It changes me. To once again, as I've already talked about, we're not full of bitterness and wrath and anger and upset all the time, and it begins to grow. Hebrews says, don't let that root of bitterness grow in your heart. And I have known people, and perhaps you have as well, that they want years and years of being unforgiving and just uh, 
anger and wrath and bitterness, and it began to just do an incredible eating away at their heart and at their soul. Because they were not willing to cry out to the Lord in the honesty of their hearts. He knows our hearts. And to say, Lord, I need help. And I hear the command of Jesus to forgive. I hear the command of Scripture that I'm to love and to pray. And Lord, I do pray that you change them. Open their eyes. Lord, bring them to the place that you want to. But Lord, change me as well. Second of all, not only does it change us, but secondly, I pray for those who have hurt me because of what Jesus did for us. And as I realized that Jesus died for my sins, it was my sin that put him on that cross. That while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5. And Jesus went through tremendous sufferings for me, for my rebellion, my sin, what I did to him and against God, the offense and sin against him and the iniquity and all of that. He was willing to allow that cat of nine tails to be put on his back as they ripped the skin off his back, to have his beard pulled out, as Isaiah says, that they punched him, that they beat him to where he was unrecognizable. And there's Pilate saying to the cross, look, look, the man, look what they've done to him. And to where he was hanging on a cross and bleeding into the ground as he hung between heaven and earth. And he did it because of my sin and because of his love for me. And on that cross, he would cry out to those who were mocking him, the religious leaders that were so determined to put him to death. And they beat him and turned him over to the Romans. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me and his love for me, that I know that there are times when I feel mad and angry and upset and Lord, call down fire on them and consume them. You know, I was talking about David at the beginning of the, the service that David, he was so honest to the Lord in his Psalms. And there are places that it was David that said, Lord, break their teeth out. But then he would turn back to the Lord and, and get that proper perspective. And Lord, my peace and my rest and my comfort and my assurance and my strength is in you. And we begin to worship. And I know that I need to do that. And I need to take a walk when I am so upset and angry and mad. And I need to look up and I need to remember how much the Lord has forgiven me. And his incredible grace that has been bestowed upon me and lavished on me. And his continual love for me. Paul says, oh, I wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. But Paul knew that Jesus had already done that, that he was a curse, as it's written, curses everyone who hangs upon the tree. Jesus took that curse, his sin upon you and me, as he provided for not only Israel's salvation, but for all of us. So Paul, in this incredible opening statement, verse 4, as we continue, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. So Paul is reflecting how God made the Jewish people his own special people. They were adopted as his own. He gave them the covenants, the law. They were to serve God, and they were given the promise of God. And God said to them, you will be my people and I will be your God and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you're a special treasure to me. 
And they, as you read the Old Testament, you know they saw the glory of God. There was the, the cloud of glory in the wilderness. There was the Shekinah glory of God out there. There was the, the temple that was dedicated in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles chapter 7 says that the priests had to stop ministering because the glory of God was so overwhelming and so, so awesome that it filled the temple. So the people of Israel had so many benefits that the other nations didn't have. And it was to be a testimony to the other nations of God's truth and faithfulness and goodness. God had established his covenant with Abraham. He had given them the law through Moses. He had given them the promise of Messiah. The Messiah is going to come through the Jews. And the Savior Messiah, Jesus, would come through them from the tribe of Judah and here in verse 5, I just want to make quick reference, but you might want to underline it and make note of it, that Jesus, he is over all the eternally blessed God. The reason I point this out is you can go to the New Testament. There's a number of verses that you can show that, you know, Jesus' deity, his divinity, that he's God in human flesh. He claimed that. You can go through John's gospel. You can go through, you know, what's written in the New Testament. But there are those who will come to you and to me and say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was a good teacher. He was a great spiritual leader. You know, he was a great, you know, a great, you know, moral, you know, philosopher or whatever. I believe in the sayings of Jesus. But do you believe that he's the son of God, God that came in human flesh? No, I don't believe that. Do you believe that he's God? You can show this to the cults, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the New Agers, to those who think that Jesus was just a good teacher. He is God. Well, show me that. Here's a verse you can show them very easily. That he is overall the eternally blessed God. Paul calls him God. And it's one of the strongest statements of deity that you can show people that they understand what is declared of Jesus. In verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So Paul begins to make an important point here. And it's going to lead him to talk about the sovereignty of God. And the failure of the Jews to respond to the gospel of Christ does not mean that God's word failed. And then Paul makes an interesting statement here. He says, for not all Israel who are of Israel. Israel means, I don't know if you know this, that Israel literally means governed by God. So Isaac has two sons. Esau, Jacob, that are going to be mentioned here in a little bit. And Jacob, his name means heel snatcher. He is very resourceful, always planning, plotting, deceiving, all of this, all through his life. And in, in Genesis chapter 32, finally he comes to the brook Jabbok, and, and he's there. He can't go forward because Esau's coming at him with 400 men. He can't go back to where he was with Uncle Laban, and he's there at the brook, and he's there. And all of a sudden the Lord sneaks up on Jacob and begins to wrestle with him. Interesting chapter that we have in Genesis and he's wrestling with Jacob all night long and finally the Lord touched the hip of Jacob it comes out of socket and he says the Lord to Jacob what's your name the Lord knew his name but he would have to confess Jacob I'm the heel snatcher I'm the deceiver always plotting planning always trying to figure things out and I can't do that anymore I can't go forward. I can't go backwards. And the Lord said, you're no longer known as Jacob. You're going to be called Israel, which means governed by God. 
And you see, it is through that place where we find ourselves where we can't go forward and we can't go backwards and we can't come up with the plan and we can't connive and do things in our own understanding and deceive or whatever the case may be, be very resourceful. It is in that place of brokenness, listen, that he desires to say to you and to me when we come to that place, I want you now to be called Israel, governed by me. And that's a very important place for all of us to be. And you know, it says that Jacob, he, he walked with the limp because his hip was out of socket and he had a cane they had to lean on. And the Lord wants us to learn to lean on him. He wants you and I to be called Israel, governed by God. So not all those who are, are Israel or, you know, uh, are of Israel that call themselves Israelites. And he would make the same point in chapter 2. He says, not all of you that are true Jews are, you know, just circumcised outwardly, but you're to be circumcised inwardly of the heart. And it's like for us as Christians that just because somebody says they're a Christian doesn't mean that they're a follower of Christ. It doesn't mean they've come to the to surrender to the lordship of Christ. Sometimes people say, I'm a Christian because I went to church or my name's on the membership rolls or I gave to the church or, you know, my parents were Christians. Your parents can't save you. Or, you know, my spouse is a Christian. Your spouse can't save you. Calvary Chapel can't save you. It is only by coming and surrendering to Jesus Christ, to his lordship, recognizing that you are going to stand before the Lord. What have you done with Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you come to him? Have you asked for forgiveness? And he's calling you to do that even today if you've never done that. But we do want to finish quickly here in verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come as Sarah shall have a son. You know the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. In Genesis chapter 12, they had no children. They waited for the promise to come to pass. And as the promise, you know, wasn't happening, wasn't being fulfilled, it was Sarah that said, okay, Abraham, nothing's happening. I'm still barren. We've had no son. So this is what we'll do. Let's get God a hand. We need to help him out. So you take my, you know, maidservant, Hagar, and you have a son with her. And Abraham says, okay, I'll do that. And Ishmael was born. And the Lord comes to Abraham and says, no, no, no. This isn't the son of the promise. That you and Sarah are going to have a son. And the promise and the covenant is going to go through him. His name's going to be called Isaac. And it was Abraham in Genesis 17 that would cry out, oh, that Ishmael may live, Lord. How many times that we say to the Lord, my fleshly endeavors, my fleshly motives, my fleshly work, Lord, may it live. When the Lord wants to do a work of the Spirit, he said, no, Isaac is the promise of the Spirit. Isaac is where the covenant's going to go through. 
I'm not going to recognize the work of the flesh, Abraham. And it's an important lesson for you and for me because we can go to the Lord and say, Lord, bless this, what I'm doing. And even as a church, we can do that. You know what churches do is that sometimes they'll have committee meetings and they'll ha- sit down and write down, how can we market the church? How can we draw people in? How can we have, you know, where everything is right, where, you know, people are coming in with the lights and, and the smoke and, and, and the entertainment and the hype and all all of this we can do things like that if we want to but it ends up to where is it a work of the flesh I'm not going to criticize all that but for me here's a big difference there's a difference of you know what Lord this is what we're going to do to try to draw people in so get behind us and bless it rather than Lord I want to look at God's word here for the model of the church as they continue steadfastly in prayer in the word of God and in fellowship and breaking bread and they turn the world upside down and it was added daily to the church thus who were being saved. That's the model of the church doing those things. And Lord, we want to not try to perfect that which begun in the spirit. That's what Paul said to the Galatians. Are you going to perfect what has begun in the spirit in the flesh? So I want to go to the Lord and I want to say, listen, Lord, according to scripture, that we can do these things and we want to get behind you and let you lead. Big difference. And I pray not only for that, for Calvary Chapel here, and I'll tell you, it's such a blessing to be able to do that. To say, Lord, you lead us, you guide us. You'll be responsible for the results. We want to be right where you want us to be, being led by you and for your life personally, that you and I, this church, that truly that we're governed by God and led by him. So next week we'll get into more as he talks about the sovereignty of God and um, and talks about this important subject. But Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word given to us. And what my prayer is, is that we would always be, Lord, in that place where we are looking to you, governed by you. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to pray if there's anyone here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. There is none other. No one else went to the cross and died for you and rose from the grave. Only Jesus Christ. And the invitation is given to come. The greatest need of any man or any woman is to come in faith, be forgiven recognizing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the grave and is alive and that he has provided forgiveness and salvation and right relationship with the Father. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Will you do that right now? If you've never done that, it's the most important decision you will ever make in your life. It has eternal consequences. And you can, right where you are, sincerely pray, Jesus, I come to you and I recognize my need to surrender my life to you, to ask for forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me. That you rose again in your life, speaking to my heart. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you that you died for me and you love me. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. I thank you for this newness of life. In 
your love for me in Jesus' name. And listen, if anybody prayed that prayer, that as we're going to have a prayer team up front, come up and tell them the decision you made. Or if you came with somebody, came with family or with friends, tell them the decision you made. Because we want to support you and we care for you as much as we can. And Lord, for all of us, as we just finish up here, that in our hearts, Lord, as I'm sure that many of us have been hurt, and Lord, it stains and it's real, but Lord, help us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. And to give it to you for you to do a work, not only in the situation, but in our hearts, that we're not full of bitterness and anger, that we would give it to you moment by moment, day by day, bit by bit and Lord begin to do a work and change in our hearts that supernatural work of the Holy Spirit I pray that we would be freed and Lord that we would just continue to grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ Lord I thank you for this time today even though it's a difficult subject we talk about but Lord make it real in our lives as we continue to be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.